At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, Earth-like exoplanet discoveries galore, including some that could be habitable. Plus, a look back at the clandestine history of the CIA's pigeon surveillance missions. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. It was announced last week that NASA has spotted another Earth-sized exoplanet well within the habitable zone of its star. Meet TOI-700E. TOI stands for TESS Object of Interest. TESS is NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which monitors large swaths of the sky for about 27 days at a time, tracking the changes in stellar brightness caused by planets crossing in front of their stars, what is called a transit. Or, as The Verge refers to TESS, NASA's Planet Hunting Telescope. Hunting for planets, and especially keeping an eye out for ones that can either tell us more about our own solar system, or that could potentially have hosted life at some point in time, or even currently. And as Science Alert puts it, quote, When it comes to finding life outside of our solar system, planets that closely resemble Earth seem like a good place to start. End quote. TOI-700E is about 95% the size of Earth, believed to be quite rocky and within the habitable zone of its star. A habitable zone generally means the region in which a planet is close enough but not too close to its star so that liquid water could exist on its surface. So cool enough temperature-wise for vapor to condense, but not so cold that the surface just becomes entirely ice. But there is more to it than that. Researchers categorize further into optimistic and conservative habitable zones. Quoting The Verge, The optimistic habitable zone refers to an area where there could have been liquid water present at some point in a planet's history, while the conservative habitable zone is a smaller area within that in which planets would remain habitable. These two are different because of a planet's surface temperature, and hence whether water could exist in liquid form, and can vary widely based on factors like the thickness and composition of a planet's atmosphere over time. This expansion of the traditional habitable zone is to account for the fact that we believe Mars and Venus once had liquid water on their surfaces, explained Emily Gilbert from the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab, referring to the evidence that there was water on both planets billions of years ago. End quote. TOI-700E is described as being in an optimistic habitable zone, but it's not the only planet in the habitable zone of its solar system. Back in 2020, TESS spotted TOI-700D. 
and it previously discovered planets TOI 700b and c as well, but those do not orbit their star in a habitable zone because they are too close to it. TOI 700d, however, d as in delta, is about 10% larger than planet E and considered in the conservative habitable zone. Gilbert said in a NASA statement, this shows both how additional test observations are helping NASA find smaller and smaller worlds, and that the TOI-700 system merits continued follow-up because it's one of only a few systems that now has multiple small habitable zone planets that we know of. Ben Horde, a graduate researcher at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, said, quote, If the star was a little closer or the planet a little bigger, we might have been able to spot TOI-700E in the first year of test data. But the signal was so faint that we needed the additional year of transit observations to identify it, end quote. Science Alert explains, quote, Telescopes see these exoplanets, or planets outside of our solar system, as regular blips in the light of their parent stars as they pass in front of it, in what's known as a transit. With more surface blocking the star's light, larger planets present easier opportunities to be seen than small, rocky worlds, making Earth-like discoveries like this one a rare treat. TESS is monitoring around 100 million stars, and so any way we can find to narrow down the search for life is going to be useful. Finding exoplanets in their respective habitable zones is one of the best ways we've got of doing that. End quote. And a little bit more on the star, TOI-700, as well as the planets in the system, quoting NASA, TOI-700 is a small, cool, M-dwarf star located around 100 light-years away in the southern constellation Dorado. In 2020, Gilbert and others announced the discovery of the Earth-sized habitable zone planet D, which is on a 37-day orbit along with two other worlds. The innermost planet, TOI-700b, is about 90% Earth's size and orbits the star every 10 days. TOI-700c is over two and a half times bigger than Earth and completes an orbit every 16 days. The planets are probably tidally locked, which means they spin only once per orbit such that one side always faces the star, just as one side of the moon is always turned toward Earth. DOI-700E, which may also be tidally locked, takes 28 days to orbit its star, placing planet E between planets C and D in the so-called optimistic habitable zone, end quote. Planets are assigned letters based on the order in which they're discovered, not the order they are from the star, which is why planet E comes between planets C and D. Gilbert joked at a press briefing at the American Astronomical Society annual meeting last week, quote, I'm very sorry that they're not in alphabetical order, end quote. And what's great is that TOI-700e wasn't even the only Earth-sized rocky exoplanet presented at the AAS meeting last week. LHS-475b was also announced, although it wasn't spotted by Planet Hunter Tess, but rather by the James Webb Space Telescope. This marks the JWST's first new exoplanet discovery and the first time researchers were able to study the planet's atmosphere. LHS-47b, as well as TOI-700e, is unique because many exoplanets are large gas giants, not smaller, rocky planets. However, unlike TOI-700e, LHS-475b is not in the habitable zone. 
It orbits very closely to a small, dim star and completes its orbit in just two days. But the fact that JWST was able to spot it bodes well for future discoveries of other, even more Earth-like planets in the future. And when it does discover those, researchers are eager to use the telescope to study those planets' atmospheres, giving them even more data to use in determining whether a planet is habitable. It will be kind of challenging, though. As I said above, these planets are detected by observing transits, a complex method in itself. And because exoplanets give off so little light relative to much larger stars, JWST can only detect the atmosphere of rocky planets orbiting quite close to their stars. But that proximity also means those planets are hotter and might even have their atmospheres stripped away due to heat and radiation. Now, the researchers did use a method called transmission spectroscopy to look at the atmosphere of LHS-475b, and while, according to The Verge, they weren't able to determine exactly what the atmosphere was made of, they were able to rule out various options. Its atmosphere isn't pure methane or hydrogen-dominated, and it might have one thick with carbon dioxide or possibly not have an atmosphere at all. Those observations, general as they are, are a huge step forward from previously, and as observations of this planet and others continue, researchers will be able to go even deeper. As lead researcher on the LHS-475b detection, Jacob Lustig-Jaeger said, quote, We're just starting to scratch the surface of what is possible with JWST. End quote. At the end of 2021, I told you all about the popular birds aren't real conspiracy theory, or, well, fake conspiracy theory. Peter McIndoe created the viral movement that parodies all the classic truther conspiracy theories you might find online, but for years, he wouldn't publicly admit that it was fake. He even made it onto local news stations and frequently held public events with his Birds Aren't Real van. The merch line is also very good. McIndoe admitted it was a satirical movement in a New York Times feature in December of 2021, but the group's shenanigans are still going strong. The conspiracy theory goes that during the Cold War, the U.S. government killed all of the birds and replaced them with surveillance drones. Now, as it turns out, the satirical conspiracy theory isn't actually that far off. I mean, okay, the U.S. government did not execute 12 million birds, and they're not currently using bird-like surveillance drones on all of us, but they did apparently employ some birds as spies. Back in 2019, the CIA declassified some of the documents relating to its pigeon surveillance missions, or Operation Takana. Some aspects of the missions are still classified, but here's the gist of what we know for now. Pigeons have been used in communications and military operations for thousands of years. The first recorded instance was documented by Pliny the Elder. Germany explored using pigeons for reconnaissance in World War I, and Britain used them in World War II. Gordon Carrera, author of a book on the UK's pigeon spies, wrote in the BBC in 2019, quote, In World War II, a little-known branch of British intelligence, M14D, ran a secret pigeon service, which dropped birds in a container with a parachute over occupied Europe. 
A questionnaire was attached. More than 1,000 pigeons returned with messages including details of V-1 rocket launch sites and German radar stations. One message from a resistance group called Leopold Vindictive produced a 12-page intelligence report sent directly to Churchill. After the war, a special pigeon subcommittee of Britain's Joint Intelligence Committee looked at options for the Cold War, but while British operations were largely shut down, the U.S. CIA took over in exploiting pigeon power. End quote. Indeed, they did. Now, the U.S. had already been using pigeons for communication since the late 19th century, but apparently did not get into the spy game with them until the Cold War. Many different birds were trained in attempted missions in the 70s, like ravens, which were trained to drop bugging devices on windowsills, and other species were included too. Dogs with some kind of electric brain stimulation to control them remotely, cats with listening devices inside of them, and they tried training dolphins for underwater missions. Something I can't imagine without thinking of Dr. Evil's sharks with freaking lasers strapped to their freaking heads. But pigeons were the bulk of the focus for the same reason that they'd been employed for centuries. One of their natural skills is being able to find their way back home, even if they're dropped hundreds of miles away in a place they've never been to before. And while all of these programs were apparently dismissed as silly for a long time, the pigeons eventually became a serious resource for consideration when some at the CIA realized they could help the agency get photographic coverage of places in the Soviet Union that their typical satellites couldn't. The pigeons could get much closer undetected. Quoting Atlas Obscura, The project quickly ballooned in scope. By September 1976, the Office for Research and Development had already invested $100,000, not just training pigeons, but designing harnesses and cameras for the operation. Testing and training were conducted throughout the United States. Various methods of releasing the pigeons were trialed, including modifying a VW Beetle to transport the birds. Taking inspiration from stage magicians, the CIA cut a hole in the floor of the Beetle, allowing for pigeons to be surreptitiously released. By October 1976, the birds were flying over Andrews Air Force Base near Washington, D.C., The images the birds captured, since declassified by the CIA, were of astounding quality. Air conditioners could easily be seen on the top of buildings, and it was possible to count the window panes on the old naval gun factory. The full-resolution capabilities of the -the state-of-the-art American spy satellite Gambit 3s are still classified, but it's known that it could spot an object as small as 4 inches square. The pigeons could provide a resolution of 3 quarters of an inch. End quote. The Navy Yard in Southeast D.C. was the next feasibility test target, which further proved just how detailed of images these pigeon-carried cameras were able to capture. From the BBC, quote, The intended mission was for the pigeons to be used against priority intelligence targets within the Soviet Union. The files indicate that the birds would be secretly shipped to Moscow. The CIA looked at a lot of ways they could be released, possibly from under a thick overcoat or from a hole in the floor of a car when parked. They even looked at whether pigeons could be launched from a side window while the car was traveling up to 50 miles per hour. A pigeon would be launched a few miles from a target installation and then fly over it before returning to the place it had been trained to recognize as home. 
It appears from a September 1976 memo that a target had been selected, shipyards at Leningrad that built the most advanced Soviet submarines, end quote. But that's where the declassified files end. Atlas Obscura notes that some memos called the program a mess and advised against going forward with it. But considering the declassified files conveniently end right before that point, we don't know. Now, we do know that the Pigeons took photos of people in the Navy Yard and Air Force Base and a little bit beyond those borders without them knowing, and that they probably weren't jazzed about people finding out about that anytime soon since these feasibility tests were done at a time when the CIA had just been publicly outed as wiretapping and otherwise surveilling unwitting Americans. But did they do even more of that using Pigeons? or at least send the pigeons to the Soviet Union to spy there? Maybe we'll find out in the future if another batch of documents on these missions is one day declassified. I'm sure birds aren't real will have a field day. And if you are doubting the veracity of any of this or just want to learn more, check out the link in the show notes from the CIA's own museum website, which shows the pigeon camera and harness they have on display at the museum and even features a video explaining the history of what has been declassified thus far. It is a real trip. All right, well, that's going to be it for me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.